Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Helen Wood. Helen, it's great to see you. It's been a long time since we've been together. I've just engaged in some childish confessional talk with you, but now we're here having a serious conversation. And my first question is basically, how are you? What are you thinking? What's preoccupying you or occupying you these days? Oh, nice to see you too, Toby, after such a while. And uh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I've... um been thinking a lot lately about care and uncaring structures and caring structures and I've just moved job to the University of Aston in Birmingham so I'm going back to my roots back to Birmingham back to where I was a student at the CCCS although not at Birmingham University but back to the city um, and primarily to to support um um, looking after two kids, trying to be an academic, trying to be a feminist academic and trying to do something for my hometown. So I don't know. So my life <laughs> and my in- interests are sort of dovetailing in a weird way, I guess, I guess. And for those not familiar with the acronym CCCS is or was the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies where you were a student and who's yeah. in a sense collaborative work, you helped to compile into a series of retrospective books right actually yeah when I was um I had one of my first teaching jobs at Birmingham and as part of a collective there for Routledge we collected together a lot of the working papers so I was a very young academic then I was in my early 20s and um I haven't told this story much before but um we had a bit of some of the compilation had already been agreed and um we then had to have some negotiations with the big people of CCCS about what, what was going in. And I had, had to go to, to London to meet with Stuart Hall. I was about 25 <laughs> to talk about whose version of the critique of Gramsci should go into the CCCS working papers. I was completely terrified. But um, actually, now it's a brilliant story because I, get, I got to sit, sit and listen to him tell me about which versions of of Gramsci would work best against against her and it was just an amazing moment in my in my life really and I'm really grateful to Anne Gray and the others for giving me the opportunity to do it yeah wonderful now you mentioned care as being something that's important at the moment now that can apply to care for your hometown care for the student body the faculty and the administrative and cleaning and food staff of the university or care for your children or care for yourself. Can you elaborate a bit on what the care concept means to you right now? Uh, Well, I guess what I've been thinking about a lot um, during COVID, both Skeggs and I wrote something about um, the the kind of heroic uh, appraisal of our care workers and how you know we were doing things like clapping for them on doorsteps etc and you know what what's not being acknowledged or what wasn't being acknowledged alongside that was just how injustice how um how problematic care structures are so just how how poorly paid how the you know much of capitalism relies on this kind of unpaid care labor 
And yet there's a massive crisis in care that people like Nancy Fraser and Emma Dowling are talking about. Um, and that's been a kind of, you know, long term concern since the 70s for feminists around what happens to all this work that keeps us alive, that allows us to flourish, that is undervalued, underpaid. And it just seemed to really come to a head during COVID. But so there's a kind of formal problem around formalised care. But also, you know, alongside that, there's a kind of ideological rhetoric around self-care and well-being and a kind of individualised approach to care that's preventing us or providing a kind of ideological blockage, I think, to preventing us from communitising care and really, put it, you know, making care a kind of social enterprise uh, uh, rather than promoting a very individualised enterprise. So... I'm very big on self-care in many ways. Like I'm, I'm the first person to approve of lots of self-indulgence. Absolutely, 100%. But I also, you know, think it's about time that we started to do things very, very differently and make more, I guess, demands for um, different kinds of caring structures. And, I, you know, my the thing I'm working at the moment is oddly about one of the most uncaring industries there is. I'm looking again at reality television production and trying to think about how we might put a more caring um, uh, infrastructure into a commercial, uncaring, competitive, profit-driven space. Completely impossible, perhaps. But yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Interestingly, of course, because ITV's latest commercial for Nigel Farage, who is a far-right <laughs> politician, lost 4 million viewers compared to the norm for the series. And some people are calling this the beginning of the end for the popularity of that kind of social Darwinist reality programming in Britain. I wonder what your view is. Yeah, it's funny because there are something, as ever, some things go down and some things go up. So, I mean, I think maybe, you know, maybe the jungle's had its day, for sure. <laughs> but what's really oddly research or, you know, thriving are programmes about marriage, love, intimacy. So Married at First Sight is huge, for instance, you know, and I guess um, feminists have said this is really odd in an age of heteropessimism where marriage is less likely to succeed than ever, less necessary, less. And yet, yet reality TV seems to be absolutely thriving on teaching us these privatised solutions to, to love and life. So I think that's odd. I think things, you know, will come and go. Um, but um, what I've become sort of, I mean, for years and years and years, as you know, media, media and cultural studies, we've been writing about, you know, these problematic representations that thrive across all kinds of TV, but also reality TV. But we've done less work getting under the hood of how it works. And um, so the new project is trying to think about how, how it's made, how policies made, how participants feel going through the process. Because in the UK, um, Ofcom have changed the broadcasting regulations so that broadcasters now do have to show, and this is interesting for me in terms of care, a duty of care to participants. So there's a kind of 
regulatory framework around it emerging based on for the you know a lot of the time based on kind of controlling and trying to manage risk so i don't think it's any accident that a lot of people come out of these programs with lots of social problems with lots of mental health problems and there's a kind of mental health toolkit solution being put on top of it in an industry where people work long hours on precarious contracts where there's a lot of bullying where there's a lot of sexism so it's kind of really curious place where kind of care is being talked about but it's being talked about in a very neoliberal are people resilient enough can they cope using those kind of mechanisms rather than thinking about a kind of more radical idea of care that we would want to take forward from a kind of feminist perspective. So I'm trying to sort of intervene in that space a bit, which is really unusual for me. You know, I've done audience research. I've done a lot of stuff on TV, on theory. on, But I've never really done stuff about production or policy or how things are made. Now, just for some background for people who may not be from Britain, so Ofcom is the national regulator. Uh, yeah, so Ofcom is the um, Office for Communications, so it's the Communications and Broadcast Regulator. So it, it goes across all telecoms and broadcasting and media across the across the board. Uh, what it what it can't take into its orbit at the moment, although it's perhaps trying to, are streaming services, the ways in which it's struggling to cope with how streaming services are kind of, or have an impact in kind of national agendas. And the other thing that's perhaps relevant is that at the moment in Britain, I say at the moment, but it's been true since there was a prison in the modern times, there is a big crisis over immigration and far-right imperialistic racism. And this is relevant to the discussion of care because so many paid but underpaid carers in the UK working for the National Health Service and, and other entities are immigrant workers who are there mm. with papers but whose presence which is much greater than the presence of so-called illegal immigrants or refugees, is anathema to the ruling class and its ideological fractions in the middle class to working class. Yeah? Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's been, it's been mobilised. I mean, that kind of... The, you know, the, the history of Brexit and, and what we've seen has mobilised a kind of anti-immigration intent, which sort of um, hides the ideas that that a lot of this workforce is holding up a lot of British infrastructure, certainly holding up the NHS. We've certainly seen since Brexit problems in hospitality and those kinds of it. it because people can't get staff anymore. Agriculture? Yeah, agriculture, yeah, all of those. But we, some time ago, well, during during COVID, uh, Jilly Kay and I wrote something called The Race for Space. It was a, an article for, for, um, for Continuum. And um, we talked about a kind of covering over of immigration as something that belonged to a problem of the city. We reused Raymond Williams's uh, the city, uh, the country, and the city, and 
we talked about the ways in which it sort of helped to hide the kind of realities of what capitalism does and the ways in which race is baked into these kinds of structures. And it's funny how COVID seemed to do that. It seemed to offer these kind of white spaces of freedom where no black people could live, but would be kind of like free and, and full of air and, you know, these kind of cottage core kind of dynamics as though as though they weren't produced through and by capital. They weren't produced through and by immigration, as though they weren't produced by the city. And so the, the elite, the group you're talking about, sold themselves these stories of sustainable escape. Like they were somehow escaping for the environment. They were somehow going to live a, a more natural life, you know, working on their allotments, which was good for this, as though that wasn't enabled by those very structures. And I think that's really interesting that we have a kind of, we called it cloaking. We had that there's this kind of cloaking of, of, of the kind of realities of migration and immigration and what that means um, during that process. I think that's really interesting. I mean, no, no, the stories in the UK at the moment about um, trying to pass a policy to ship people to Rwanda is just it, all part of a, you know, the, the fact that that's not abhorrent to many people is part of the, the story, the part, the, the work that that ideology is doing, I think. And that the opposition to it from the so-called Labour Party takes the form of saying it's not practical. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Well, cost so, us more money. Yeah, and they got it. It will cost more money. Well, it's, or, the government's already spent over £300 million on nothing. Yeah. Anyway, if I could ask you a slightly personal question, but related to this, about yeah. growing up and your experience of growing up in Britain in terms of racial difference and class difference, because I think that uh, some of your work connects to personal stories of mm -hmm. your own and, and others. But I'm just wondering about that element in the context of uh, the very important immigration of South Asians and uh, African descended peoples to Britain after the Second World War, but particularly from the 1960s on, which connects to uh, questions of the labour market because there weren't enough white people who wanted to work on buses and trains and so on. Mm -hmm. And so this led to certain places like Bradford, Birmingham, London becoming import and Leicester actually after seven after the early 70s becoming important nodes of multiculturalism in what remained a predominantly white culture. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a place called Cannock, which is a um, was originally a mining area, working class mining area on the edges of what was called the Black Country, the home of industrialization, very close to Wolverhampton where we famously had Enoch Powell as the very right-wing <laughs> right politician. Who Enoch Powell, by the way, who was Professor of Classics at the University of Sydney. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, uh, in the 30s. And yeah. did one of the most famous translations of Horace, which was published by Yale University Press in the 1990s. Oh, yeah. But also a card, essentially a card-carrying fascist. A card carrying fascist, yeah, and and you know, kind of author of Rivers of Blood and all of that. And so, I, I kind of, I mean, I was born in 72, I know you're supposed to look shocked. Um, and 
I grew up in a very white area, actually, in 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 in, in a white working class mining area, and so I didn't feel racist tension really until I went to University of Birmingham and then I kind of understood more about multiculturalism was taught more about multiculturalism by scholars there and started to try and understand it more I mean what I understood from having a sister who worked in the NHS was the value of black women in the NHS working hard, you know, having come across during the 60s and 70s and holding up and supporting that whole um, that whole environment. What I've found more and more difficult as I've got older is trying to think about ideas around the white working class, the left behind, as a kind of anachronistic racist body somehow. And that's not what I've ever seen or ever felt or ever heard. And I feel like it's been mobilised politically. Um, and, you know, n- none of the people from home are like, you know, d- I, I recognise in those images of a kind of racist white left behind working class that was used during the Brexit vote. And... Um, I think that's increasingly something that I, I find difficult to tackle. But, uh, you know, when I see it in stories, I mean, I recently watched um, a Ken Loach film called The Old Oak. I don't know if you've seen it. And it's a great film in, in many ways and and, it, and in his tradition. But at the beginning of that film, there's um, um, refu- a refugee family moving into the street and... The person most angry at them is a white working class football hooligan who's shouting at them and screaming at them. And during the arc of the story, all of this kind of white working class community kind of redeem themselves in many ways. But this guy doesn't. He can't. Like he, this guy never has any narrative. He never has any story and he never gets better. And I kind of worry, I think about some of those tropes and some of those stories about the ways in which race and class have entwined. I mean, if you read any, if you read any of the, the you know, the, the, the kind of the stories of colonialism, it's all about how race and class are worked together and how they're entwined and those histories are entwined. And I think we have to, there's a bit of work for us still to do, I think, on behalf and for, um, on behalf of for that group. Um, so yeah, that's sort of. No, thanks for that. And just for a bit of a footnote to give some context again, the black country is an expression used to describe environmental despoliation caused by the industrial revolution in the area yeah. around Wolverhampton. It's about the recolouring of the place. It's not about race. Right. No, not at all. It's about, yeah, it's the black country because it was the home and the heart of the Industrial Revolution. So at one point it was massively wealthy. If you looked around it now, it's it's really deindustrialized. It's It's got some of the biggest social problems in the UK, the, the kind of West Midlands conurbation is um struggling because it hasn't replaced uh the replaced industry in the same way and it doesn't have this kind of cool urban kind of 
that, that London has been able to capitalise on. To some extent, Manchester's been better at capitalising on. It's still, it still struggles from that. And, that. and that's partly why I'm excited about going home, actually, and teaching students from that area and, and trying to, you know, one of the things Aston University does well, they'll like me for saying this, is it, it, gets, it gets working class kids jobs. It really does, you know, and uh, I suppose I hadn't hadn't ever felt as politically attached to that agenda before. But, but the problems around unemployment and inequalities that seem to be getting worse and worse and worse feels to me that you can't do cultural studies unless you're really trying to do something about growing inequality. I want to go back to the question or questions of cultural studies in a moment. But before that, I wonder if I could ask you about gender, because it's something you've mentioned en passant today, but we've talked more about class. Mm. Uh, I wonder about the, the place of feminism in your life, uh, growing up, studying, researching, teaching, living. So I Deep don't breath. Know. Very yeah. mistaken by the top. Do you know why? Because I always feel more comfortable talking about class. Because I, you know, in the mould of Bev Skeggs, you know, I can't think about feminism without thinking about class. Because because being, I, I found more of the, <laughs> I, I found more injustice at the hands of middle class feminism than I have at the hands the patriarchy in some ways I know I know they're entwined but um I don't know where I found feminism to be honest I I knew it I sort of knew it as a kid I knew it because I read a lot and I read a lot of kind of old literature not not fashionable literature you know I was I read all of Jane Austen and books like that. I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading them. And there were none of those things in my house. My sister had a couple, but, you know, they weren't there readily available. I didn't grow up in a particularly literary home. And I was just, I just knew that I had to study that at university. And I knew it through literature. That's where I knew it. I knew it through my English literature degree. Yeah. Wow. And so then when I went to university and I, and I was one, I think I was the second year that you could do uh, cultural studies at Birmingham. So I did an English literature degree combined with cultural studies so that I could talk about, um, so that I could think about gender and feminism. And I remember being interviewed by Jorge Lorraine to get to get my undergraduate position and I remember telling him how crazy I found women women's magazines were and how they made no sense to me and I didn't know what they were telling me to do um and I and we were all kind of I think there were about 15 of us on the degree program and we realized we were all kind of handpicked as, as cultural studies people <laughs> you know we rec- we we each Sometime about a year in, we recognised we each represented a different kind of marginal group. And and that's when I knew I was there to represent the working class. <laughs> and that's when I realised that those two, those two things work together. But I think as my career's gone on, what I've tried to do, and there'll probably be lots of people who don't agree with me, I've tried to be 
feminist in my operations, in the way I've worked, in the way I've encouraged other people, in the way I've tried to be collective, in the way I've tried to not take individual kind of praise for things that are collective efforts. You know, I've tried to make that a way of working and um, I've also tried to, and I've, it's been difficult, but I've done it as I've got older. Um, actually, we, we had a bit of a joke. Uh, Helen, I've lost your sound. Okay. Uh, back now. Sorry. Okay. I lost your sound when you said we had a bit of a joke. <laughs> and the joke was press the RP button when I sound too common which is received pronunciation. Oh, yes, our joke. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. And uh, as I, I've, I used to really hide my accent because I felt like I didn't fit in because I was doing all of that. You know, I've got to somehow get rid of my imposter syndrome and try and fit in with what middle-class academia looks like. And then somebody came up to me after I gave a talk and said, I didn't think I could be an academic until I heard you speak. And I thought, right, okay, it's time to let go of this. It's time to make sure that, that those things come through. And I suppose now that the project I'm doing right now, it's it's going back to some of the things I read in the 70s about care, about undoing, about wages for housework, about living in different structures. It's, there's a revival of all of that thinking and I'm taking it to a to a site that's uh, really macho, really commercial, um, and really problematic. And I'm trying to do it again, I suppose, with a kind of very traditional fe feminist politics. Before we get back to cultural studies in general, could you tell us a little bit more about the project? So we've managed to get funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is the uh, UKRI in the UK. We've managed to get nearly a million pounds, which for the Arts and Humanities is huge. And um, the project is called ReCare TV, Reality Television Working Practices and Duties of Care. And it works across production with uh, my colleague Jack Newsinger at Nottingham. Uh, participation, which is with reality TV participants with Jilly Kay at Uthra. Um, and then at Aston, uh, I've, my postdoc, Mary Brennan, is working with me on um, policy and interviewing policymakers and um, commissioning editors, legal compliance leads, etc. And we're going to have, we've got a whole package of a series of interviews and a program of outputs to try and think about what's happening in the sector and how we might help to make it better. So we're also working with um, the a consultant psychologist who's helping us think about working practices and better mental health protocols. Um, because the, the way in which... Um, interventions in the sector have been set up have come about mostly and I don't know if you'll remember this but there are a series of suicides of people coming out of reality television and it's kind of interesting that you know reality television has become a sort of um, site for pr promoting yourself as 
the most neoliberal, resilient, entrepreneurial individual uh, that could go through these processes and come out the other end and survive. You know, it sort of has become a kind of, you, they become the poster boys for girls of, of, of kind of modern life. And um, as a result of, there was a parliamentary inquiry into production processes, which uncovered quite a lot of problematic um, practices. Uh, Ofcom, ha, which is the broadcast regulator, had a consultation process and changed the they changed the um, the broadcasting code as a result, which has all been a kind of response that's been around duties of care and a kind of responsabilization and a risk management framework. Um, none of it's thought about how how the process works and what it might be like to work through it um and 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 so what we're arguing is that we need to think about this process right the way from commissioning through production through what it's like to go through the process and over the top of all of that this is in the proposal we're trying to come up with a kind of a framework for care that will draw heavily on feminist theory um uh, and that is we talk about we talked about this again at our project meeting last week this is this is going to be fundamentally our our biggest challenge and uh, the biggest most exciting thing we could possibly do so we are working with the broadcasters we are working with beck two which is the film and tv workers union and we're working with equity to try and think about better protocols and getting better care structures in place as part of the production enterprise. Um, but all of that is um, supported, I guess, by uh, ideas about communitizing care rather than privatizing care. So it feels to me, feels like to us at the moment that the responses are about individualizing, making, making sure people are resilient enough to go through the process. Not, they're not about thinking about interactions, interdependencies, and I suppose, you know, even even in Virginia Held's book, The Ethics of Care, there is a moment where she talks about the creative industries because this is a space where, you know, I, I, and I did in an ideal world, the creative industries are about getting the best out of people, thinking about people flourishing, thinking about them, you know, producing things that are good for, for the arts and for the humanities that they have a kind of different, should have a sense of good. And of course, but they're also at the hardest end of kind of neoliberal working practices and neoliberal working cultures. So we've, we're literally <laughs> hitting this very problematic um, intersection head on, I guess, which is either crazy or it'll be, you know, possibly one of the most exciting things I've been able to do. Because I, like I, I've done a lot of audience research and I've done a lot of textual analysis, but none of it has really made a difference. <laughs> to anything other than teaching media and cultural studies and hoping that students then go off into the industry and start to do things differently. Um, so, yeah, that's the project. Beautiful and daunting, I imagine. So, uh, Prof Helen, I've got two more questions for you, and then I'd like to invite you to add anything you want to that we haven't touched on or add something to what we have discussed. So my first question is this one about cultural studies. What sort of 
present and future do you perceive for cultural studies? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I lit- I've literally not long stepped down from editing the European Journal of Cultural Studies, which I was very felt very privileged to do. But I felt like I needed to hand on the baton to different kinds of voices. Um, and I think we're still doing the, the heart of the project of decolonizing it and and internationalizing it and and making it more connectable and in some ways i feel really feel the burden of being a white woman who isn't very good at that <laughs> you know it's i'm not a super international person because i've been at home bringing up two kids trying to also be an academic and so I kind of feel we've got a responsibility towards that which I'm trying to do in the ways I can one of the things that that that's problematic at the moment particularly in the UK is just how much the arts humanities and social sciences to some extent are under attack you know languages are being shrunk in universities arts and humanities are being shrunk in universities and cultural studies has you know, now has to find a voice, I think, in places like business schools and in places where you wouldn't have normally found a happy home. But I I think that the project has to be around connecting cultural studies back to what people need to, to survive and how to build a livable life. And I think that is that means we might have to have dialogues with places we didn't have dialogues. We might have to have a dialogue with the NHS. We might have a dialogue, and Angela McRobbie called for this, a better dialogue with social policy. We might need to have a better dialogue with with science. And and I think there are people doing that. Um, and I think um I want to try and do that more, I think. And what I want to do is to try and think about how um, Aston, which is a very diverse, in a very diverse site in Birmingham, it has a very diverse student body. What can I do for that student body? And I've never really turned my attention to that directly, I don't think, in quite the same way. And I think that's what cultural studies has to do. I think it has to have dialogues outside of itself a lot more in 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 places that we find uncomfortable wow and my last question prior to throwing to you is to ask where people who may not be familiar with your work i imagine most will be where they can find it there are lots of books and essays and so on but where would you send people in particular uh well i've you know, written a lot in the European Journal of Cultural Studies because I edited it. I've also written some pieces in feminist media studies around a lot around class and representation. And then there's the books Talking with Television, which was my PhD. And then there's Reacting to Reality TV and Reality Television and Class, which I did with both Skeggs. And I'm about to publish a book called Audience, which is... Um, 
it's for students, but it's about how to think about people in cultural studies and how to put audience in its oldest sense back at the centre. And and in the final chapter, I try and talk about um, how we might use what was a, an old term which everybody refers to, but nobody really then tells us what it is, which is the cultural circuit. So it's a reimagining of the cultural circuit for digital culture in the in the final conclusion, which I'm, I'm hoping will help teach cultural studies. I mean, what I found really hard was teaching cultural studies. It's not easy. It's not obvious. There's no particular method. There's no. And so I think people can leave it alone. And so I think if we can sort of articulate more of a method, what do you do with this vague phrase called the conjuncture? You know, how do we make that tangible for an undergraduate? I think that's kind of, that's trying to have a bit of a go at that, really. And that comes out of outreach next year. Wonderful. So finally, I'm wondering if there is something you'd like to point to that we haven't addressed. Um, well, I think Aston Villa are doing really well in the Premier League. <laughs> and I'm going to see them on Friday. And my dad was a huge Villa fan. And um, so let's, let's, let's just, I want you all to cheer for the Villa. <laughs> yes, well, of course, I'm a Foxes person in terms I know. of where, where I was born and a cottager in terms of where I grew up, Fulham. But, um, yes, Aston Villa are doing tremendously this season. I know. It's and no best accident. of all, they have a wonderful manager that was rejected by, you know, always cheating Arsenal. Same old Arsenal always cheating. <laughs> <laughs> that probably wasn't a very clever answer you were looking for. No, yeah. that's a great answer. Um, <laughs> they uh, Is it at Aston Villa where, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to do, the fans used to do a kind of seal imitation when... The team scored. Oh, do they? I don't know. Well, I don't know if they still do, but they used to do. Oh, no. that, that's just because our lungs are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Listen, I probably shouldn't have said that word. Thank you so much, Prof. It was really great listening to you and learning from you, as always. And I'd like to extract a promise from you if you agree that perhaps towards the end of this exciting project that you're embarking on with your group of collaborators, you'll return to the pod and tell us some of what you found out. I'd love to, and I'd love to, when we've got some findings and we can tell you about some of the problems we had, <laughs> which are going to be infinite. <laughs> no, that'll be great, no. and, and invite mm -hmm. as many members of the group as you wish we can do. Yeah, that. I'll get the team back. So it just, uh, there's, there's uh, Mary Brennan, Elena Kilroy, uh, Jilly Kay, Jack Newsinger. We're about to appoint somebody new as well at Nottingham in January. Exciting. All right. Many thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Toby.